North Alabama School for Organizers presents Fireside Chats, intersectional education through interviews with the organizations and people making real change right now. Listen, learn, and organize. Alicia Garza is an activist and writer who lives in Oakland, California. She has organized around issues related to health, student services, racial justice, rights for domestic workers, and violence against trans and gender non-conforming people of color. Alicia is best known as one of three founders of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013. Listen, learn, and organize today with Alicia Garza. First, let me just again say thank you for having me. I think this is a pretty critical time to be having important conversations like this. So um, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I don't want to shy away from your earlier question, Hi, because I think it, it actually um, importantly talks a little bit about this moment that we're in. And, you know, one of the things that I've been really reflecting on over the last few days, especially as Donald Trump and this administration begins to um, convene task forces to investigate, you know, radical leftists and people who are there identifying as extremists. Um, and, you know, we're starting to hear, um, you know, that they are planning to, or they're trying to figure out, right, how to punish and jail people like you, like me, um, and the way that they gather, you know, popular support for those ideas um, is using terms like the one that you've used, even though as a sociologist, somebody who has a degree in sociology and anthropology and ethnic studies, um, you know, um, we've studied many different kinds of economic theorists, right? From, you know, from, uh, what's that guy's name who is the conservative economist? Uh, I had to read a big book of his in college. What's that man's name? Thomas Friedman, right? All the way to, you know, um, Ingalls and Weber and Marx and all of these people. Um, and, and why this is important is because, you know, we're in a moment where facts don't matter and feelings do. And a lot of terms that we're throwing around these days, Antifa, Marxist, things like that, um, are similar terms that um, we were using in the aftermath of 9-11 um, to describe right, uh, what people would deem as threats to America. And so um, I think that we have to be pretty mindful in this moment that um, the Black liberation movement and the Black freedom movement is under attack right now. And that we have certainly moved from, um, you know, a, a neoliberal period to a fascist period. And what's at stake um, in the next couple of months, actually 60 days or so, um, is whether we will take a full-throated plunge into fascism and authoritarianism, um, or whether we will pick a different path. And who is at the crux and in the intersection of that are people like me, um, who have fought for 20 years, um, at least, um, to make sure that not just Black Lives Matter, although that has been my focus, uh, but to really make sure that we are um, starting a slow and steady march towards a country and a world that we deserve. Um, for me, my primary purpose and what drives me every single day 
is making sure that black people are powerful in every aspect of our lives, in the economy, in our democracy, in our society. And that is the crux of the work that I do at the National Domestic Workers Alliance as the strategy and partnerships director. It is also the crux of the work that I do at the Black Futures Lab, which is all about making black communities powerful in politics. Um, it is the work that I've done in East and West Oakland and in Hunters Point in San Francisco, organizing in black communities that have been and continue to be marginalized, disenfranchised and displaced and working with families and community members to ensure that, um, that we become the protagonists in our own stories and that we don't wait for somebody to come and save us, but that we know that we have um, the tools and the vision necessary, right? To lead this country as we always have um, to a better and brighter future. So um, quickly, I just wanna also offer that um, one of the reasons that these attacks have been so strong is because we have been so successful in capturing hearts and minds. And I wasn't alive in 1968 or 1965, right? I don't even think I was a twinkle in my mama's eye, as they say. Um, but I can imagine that there are a lot of parallels, right? Um, and so there's a lot of hope in this moment and a lot of uh, opportunity inside of crisis. Um, and so we should be mindful of both sides, but part of it for me in terms of the opportunity is that people of all backgrounds, all races, all ethnicities, all genders, all sexualities are joining together in communities across the world, right, to demand change. Um, and I feel lucky to have been the smallest part of that kind of momentum. Can you tell us a bit about the uh, Black Futures Labs, that lab that you've uh, just developed and, and the reasoning for it? Yep, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, I started the Black Futures Lab to make Black communities powerful in politics so we could be powerful in the rest of our lives. And really this idea started to germinate for me after the 2016 elections, where in contrast to today in 2016, we couldn't even get politicians to say Black Lives Matter. I mean, now, if you were to watch the TV, if you were watching TV three weeks ago, you would think that the Democratic Party was always about Black Lives Matter. Um, but I can guarantee you that, <laughs> I can guarantee you that just this short four years ago, that was absolutely not true. And Black Lives Matter was essentially a poison pill. Um, and what it meant was that I saw things that I've been seeing ever since I started voting. Um, you know, I'm somebody who um, is not far distanced from um, a family who grew up at a time when black people were disenfranchised legally and that we could not actually exercise our right to participate. And it had huge implications on our living conditions. Um, it had huge implications on our ability to live full and dignified lives. Well, here we are so many years later and we see the same kind of patterns, right? Um, and the patterns are that black communities are always the last communities that politicians show up in because they assume that, you know, they've got us in the bag. Um, and we are the communities that get the least amount of substantive engagement about the conditions that impact our lives. 
black people are engaged symbolically, but not substantively. And so what that means is that, you know, every election cycle, we see politicians going on talk shows that reach black audiences. And instead of talking about issues that impact black communities, they're doing the latest dance moves, right? Or sitting in front of a plate of soul food. But rarely do we ever get substantive engagement about you know, how to um, help further Medicaid expansion throughout the South, allowing Black families to access affordable health care um, where they are being blocked from doing so. Um, rarely do we talk about the crisis of affordable housing in Black communities. Um, and, and when we do get engaged, what we're being told, right, is that we're being lumped in with some mythical middle class, um, when what we know is that Black people and Black communities in the economy um, are incredibly not powerful. <laughs> and so the Black Futures Lab set out to change that. The way that we started off was basically by doing a project that we called the Black Census, where we reached out to Black communities all over the country from a range of demographics to find out more about what it is that we experience every day and what we care about and what we want to see done about the challenges facing our communities. I always say that if you were an alien coming from outer space and you were dropped into this country during an election season, you would think that the only thing that black folks care about is marijuana reform and criminal justice. And while those are issues that we care about, what we found from the census, which is the largest survey of black people in America in 155 years, is that the issue that's keeping black communities up at night is low wages that are not enough to support a family closely followed by lack of access to affordable health care and lack of access to affordable housing. And when it comes to criminal justice reform, right, um, and we should just call it criminal system reform because criminal justice is like an oxymoron. Um, it's like saying jumbo shrimp, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but when it comes to criminal system reform, it is one of our top 10 issues, but it's certainly not one of the top three. And so what we set out to figure out, right, is what do we want to see done about this? And largely what black communities say we want is for police to be held accountable when they commit crimes in our communities. Um, we've said that we want, um, that we actually think that government needs to take responsibility, right, for making sure that people have access to affordable housing and affordable health care. Um, and we've certainly said, right, that when it comes to um, addressing low wages, right, most of what we say about what to do about it is to eliminate racism um, in the economy. And so um, what we did with all that information is we turned it into a political organizing tool called the Black Agenda 2020. And it is a series of things that we can do right now legislatively um, to make Black Lives Matter from City Hall to Congress. And we've been using this agenda as an organizing tool, organizing people across the country to use this agenda as you're making decisions about who you support on the ballot. And as of today, we have over 50,000 Black voters who have signed on to this agenda. Um, there's a ton of other things that we do at the Black Futures Lab, but one of the things I'm really proud of is um, that we launched this year a thing that we called the Black to the Future Public Policy Institute, where we are training Black grassroots leaders from across the country to design, win, and implement new rules in cities and states 
that can fight back against the rules that have been rigged against our communities for a very long time. And in the process, right, we want to um, transform the process of how rules are made in the first place. And so as we speak, and in fact, today is one of their training days, uh, we've got four, 41 fellows who are going through four months of training on how to write our own rules and get those passed in cities and states across the nation. And starting in January, we will have at least three policy campaigns that we are supporting across the nation in state houses and city halls um, to change rules. So we know that what happens at the federal level is in our control and also not in our control. But what is very much in our control is the politics that are happening right outside our front doors. And so we are building the capacity of our communities and Alabama is one of our key states um, to, um, to govern, to govern our own communities. So that's something I'm really proud of as well. That is, that is fantastic. I guess my, my gears are going here on how we're gonna tie this into you know, NASO, our training school. Yep. I think that's something we could talk about, you know, in terms of a partnership here in Alabama, I think that's something that would be extremely important. And I think you'd get a lot of, uh, especially in the training, uh, I think you'd get a lot of, a lot of support, yep. you know, in, in this area, because I definitely think it's really, really needed. Um, I know that we are, we are trying to, at this point, uh, reorganize surge. Yep. Standing up for racial justice, and um, I don't know. We have about fourteen hundred members in this in this uh, group, uh, and the majority of them, I think, are very interested in Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something we can we can you know sort of you you can feed into you mm -hmm. know in, in in this, and I think it's just phenomenal what you're doing. Um, do you mind touching on a little bit of Black Lives uh, sure. Matter and what's going on today sure. and what you see, you know, where, where you see it's going and, and does, does um, I, guess, I guess my question is, uh, are you seeing, um, are you seeing people that claiming to belong to Black Lives Matter but are really not? not really active or not really into Black Lives Matter? I mean, how does that uh, affect the, the movement, I guess? I mean, that's a big question and I want to answer it thoroughly. So let me start with the kind of story of BLM, um, which I think is really important actually. And the short part of it is that BLM was created in the aftermath of the acquittal of George Zimmerman by, um, for killing Trayvon Martin. Um, and you all are familiar that Trayvon Martin was a 17-year-old child who went to the store during a commercial break in a football game where he volunteered to go get snacks for his brother and his father, and he didn't return home alive. And the reason for that is because a vigilante named George Zimmerman um, saw Trayvon in the community, thought that Trayvon didn't belong there, and um, shot and killed him. Um, after George Zimmerman was acquitted, there was widespread outrage um, and grief and rage and pain. And there were a lot of wrong answers to how people were responding to that. Um, in Oklahoma, for example, we saw uh, you know, legislators trying to pass bills 
um, saying that they were gonna ban the wearing of hoodies, right? As if that was going to prevent vigilante violence. Um, you know, we also saw a number of different initiatives that were targeted at black communities um, that essentially passed a message to us that we were responsible for our own murders, whether that be by vigilantes or whether that be by police. And Black Lives Matter really says something very simple, which is that um, black people did not design the systems um, that dehumanize us. And um, if we want to counter those systems, right, there's two things that have to happen, at least. Um, one is that we have to continue to build the movement against racism and white supremacy and white nationalism, um, which is a key force in devaluing black lives. Um, but the second piece of it, which is not talked about that much, um, is to shift what I think can be a culture in black communities of blaming ourselves for conditions that we didn't create. Um, and so Black Lives Matter starts as a series of online platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, um, where we essentially did work to connect people who were chattering about this case online to connect them offline to do something about the conditions that we face in our communities every single day. A full year after that, um, Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri by uh, Officer Darren Wilson. He was murdered and his body lay on the ground four feet from his mother's house for four and a half hours in the sweltering heat. And that moment catalyzed a global movement, frankly. Um, and it is because um, the images of tanks and rubber bullets and riot police um, coming into a small community that very few had ever heard of if you didn't live um, in Missouri or in St. Louis. Um, the images that were being broadcast across mainstream media were gripping and they were horrifying. And um, all of this in response to peaceful protests. And whether or not they were peaceful, right, they were rebellions in response to incredible oppression. Um, so I think when we tell the story of Black Lives Matter, we actually have to, we have to bring those things together in, a, in an important way. Um, coming out of Ferguson, Missouri, Black Lives Matter becomes um, an actual organization. So uh, Patrice and some other folks organized a freedom ride to Ferguson, which brought Black media, Black lawyers, Black organizers, Black healers um, to uh, Ferguson, Missouri, not just to support the uprisings, but also um, to help tell new stories from the perspective of people who were a part of these rebellions. Um, we all know that mainstream media often gets it wrong when it comes to covering um, what's happening in our communities. And so we brought our own resources to tell our own stories from our own perspectives. Um, and Black Lives Matter really grows out of that. People who came um, on that weekend uh, decided that one, they wanted to address the same issues that were happening in Ferguson in their own communities, and they formed chapters um, to be able to do that. Right now, Black Lives Matter has dozens of chapters across the world. Um, and so that is kind of the story of this organization. 
At the same time, Black Lives Matter becomes the umbrella and the kind of rallying cry for um, this era of Black liberation struggle. And so Black Lives Matter becomes the catchphrase. And frankly, now what we see is that everything having to do with Black people resisting gets called Black Lives Matter. Um, I have a lot of feelings about that for a lot of reasons, but um, we often get shorthanded in a bunch of ways. Um, so to your question, hi, about, you know, do people use Black Lives Matter inappropriately and how do we kind of respond and react to that? I mean, I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I feel like when we created BLM, we were pretty explicit in saying that this wasn't something that we own, that it was something that we wanted to um, carry and for people to carry and to make into their own. On the other hand, we've had to spend a lot of time um, developing and defending um, the political framework of BLM. And, um, and what I mean by that is, you know, in a shorthand way, um, we are trying to build the kind of effort that doesn't leave any Black person behind. And so many of our um, fights over generations um, have privileged able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual Christian men um, and have devalued, right, um, Black folks who don't fit into those categories, but also who are experiencing a range of oppressions amongst a number of different axes. And so for Patrice and Opal and myself, who, um, you know, have all come up in movement, I think we've all also had the visceral experience of um, being left behind when we actually should be front and center. Um, and so I can't tell you how many political meetings I've been to um, that I'm sitting in a room full of straight black men and they're talking about, you know, restoring the greatness of men to the nuclear family and all this other stuff. Um, and there's four women in the room and there's, you know, a hundred men and nobody's talking about how our struggles are interconnected or um, how our struggles are, are frankly um, the same. And so that is an intervention that I think gets lost often. And I think it gets lost on purpose, to be honest with you. So going back to what I said earlier today, you know, some of the attacks that we experience come from the left as well as the right. And I can't tell you um, how many death threats I get in my inbox. And they're not all from white men. A lot of them are from black men um, who are angry about um, our stance about being pro-queer. They are angry about our stance that families can look a lot of different ways. Um, and they are angry, right, about um, feeling like they're being displaced um, from um, a position of grandeur that they believe that they deserve. Um, unfortunately, I think that is a very reductionist way of looking at the, the political frameworks of BLM. Um, but it's also very typical. 
and it shows how much work we still have to do um, when we talk about what liberation and freedom actually looks like and feels like and some of the contradictions that we have to address inside of our own communities in order to get there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, well, it's just amazing the kind of work that you've done. And I, boy, we just, we're just in awe every time we, you know, see you out there working and, you know, and, and doing what you do. And, you know, us as, I guess, white, you know, white people, uh, really, a lot of us really feel that we could, we could penetrate, you know, that population that we're trying to, trying to reach, you know, the, the white population and, and really, you know, make it effective, you know, the way that you're doing it. Uh, the only other model, well, there are some other models, but one of them was the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, and that, of course, you know, you know, you know what happened to that, but we've been able to use a lot of, you know, Black Lives Matter approaches, you know, to, um, to, 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 to penetrate that, that population we're trying to reach, which is, you know, basically the white supremacists uh, trying to reach the, you know, the poor whites. Um, and, uh, and, and we'd love to see an explosion like that, but we haven't seen that yet. I know that there's other organizations, uh, for instance, uh, Rednecks for Black Lives, uh, that was just formed, and they're they're doing some some amazing work. Um, but I think what we'd like to do is, you know, you know, continue a lot of our dialogue and 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 what we can do together. You know, and I think Birmingham is pretty much of a battleground for us that we've chosen, uh, naturally because of its history and because it's it's present politics. But uh, uh, I, I just want to kind of turn it over to, you know, some questions now, if that's okay with you, or do you have anything else that you would like to, you know, you would like to talk about? I certainly want to respect your time. I'm open for questions. Let's do it. Okay. okay. All right. Anybody got questions here? I, I have one. Can you all hear me? Okay. Okay, I didn't know yeah. if y'all could hear my hearing response. First of all, thank you, sister, for what you're doing and for what you and the other sisters are doing. I, obviously, you know the impact that it has had. And my, I'm just getting straight to my question. My question is basically similar to what I was asking about how, <clears throat> how like people take Black Lives Matter and kind of abuse it. And I'm just wondering, as one of the founders, like, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. I'm gonna just ask it. Um, ask it. <laughs> it's the sense that I would get if if I were in the same position as you. And I again, this is me, not you. But I would be upset that people are taking this great concept, great idea that you put a lot of thought of you all put a lot of thought and development into, and they just kind of ruined it. But I don't, I don't see anybody coming on CNN or whatever and saying that's not us. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have any connection to what is going on. But at the same time, there is that sense that the people who know, know like, no, that's that person is not connected. They couldn't be. They're not connected to the ideals and things. I'm just wondering, as much as you can, share like what, what is that like 
from where you are, that tension between we don't own this, but we develop this. Does that make sense? It does. It's a good question. Thank you for it. Um, I want to start from a different place, which is um, something that you said as a part of your question, which is why not? I don't see people on CNN saying this is not us rioting and looting. And I actually, you know, one of the things I was just responding to on my phone is that I just got an email um, that Joe Biden is about to spend $45 million on ads condemning looting and rioting and violence. At the same time, Donald Trump and his Department of Justice is convening task forces, right, to root out radical leftists. And I just think that these narratives play into each other very strategically. And we have to figure out a different way of responding besides um, I'm not a looter and I'm not a rioter. Um, and I know for some people that's really uncomfortable, but I also want to be super clear what we stop talking about when we start talking about rioting and looting is we stop talking about the militias that are out on the streets creating chaos. We stop talking about the fact that a 17 year old boy became a vigilante just last week and shot two white people who were protesting. Um, and we stop talking about the fact that, you know, so much of what we've seen in terms of carnage and chaos has had everything to do with infiltration and bad actions from militias and vigilantes who are going to these protests to start this chaos. And it's documented. It's documented from Milwaukee to Minnesota to Ferguson. I mean, we have seen this over and over and over again. And so does it frustrate me? Yes. But what frustrates me more is that we don't have an appropriate political response to a political attack. And that's how I see it. I don't actually see it as a, um, an issue of people kind of taking Black Lives Matter and making it something it's not. I actually see it as a political strategy to discredit and delegitimize um, a movement that has captured hearts and minds. And it has also caused, right, the activation of this political strategy and this one in particular. And it's not new. Um, it is the same strategy that led to the assassination of Fred Hampton. It is the same strategy that led to the imprisonment of Angela Davis and George Jackson. Um, it is the same strategy that has been used against black liberation movements from time immemorial. And we are relatively quiet about it. And um, that is the part that I think is the most frustrating that we've seen this time and time again, and we have not yet figured out appropriate responses and pushback um, to these kinds of attacks on black leaders. So just to put a fine point on it, um, if I'm, you know, I'm not a fortune teller, but if I was, um, I would say pay attention to how every speech that Trump gives, he talks about how BLM, the organization, is a dangerous organization, how it's a terrorist organization. Um, notice that he uses the word organization and not movement. Um, notice, right, that Black Lives Matter in this very moment is literally becoming like Hillary's emails. And very soon we will start to hear chants of lock them up 
But instead of talking about locking up crooked Hillary, they're going to be talking about locking up extremists. And they're going to name me and Patrice and Opal and others that you all know as those extremists. So that is something that I feel like we need to have a better strategy for. And um, having a strategy for that will take care of the issue that you've just talked about. Hmm. All right. Uh, also, I have a question. Um, I had recently gotten into discussion with, with several people about uh, the, the Black, Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, the, the Black movement, you know, just in particular. Um, and how, you know, you have, you have other movements that, that involve a lot of Black people, but they seem to have one particular person as a leader. Uh, and we were talking about Black Lives Matter. It, it seems like Black Lives Matter is in different communities, you know, and each community has a leader. Uh, and uh, we're saying, well, well, why aren't we identifying, and you may have already answered this, why aren't we identifying the founders of, you know, Black Lives Matter as leaders, you know, of this movement? Uh, and, and, and one of the analogies kind of that I make is that it's probably best that, you know, you don't have a, someone really exposed out there because someone like Fred Hampton, who was exposed, and, uh, you know, I can only talk about the 60s and back in when I was involved. Um, <clears throat> the the um, Rainbow Coalition was a concept. It wasn't really, we didn't really look at it as a movement, you know, uh, that it, each community has its leaders, but it came together. And, but it was, it was the, you know, it was the capitalist system that identified him as the leader, you know, of, of the, of the uh, Rainbow Coalition and uh, put him out there in front, therefore, you know, criminalized him and, and, and assassinated him. So um, I, I guess what I'm saying is, do you think it would be best to have um, one particular leader or organizer identified or for each community to have one, uh, like, you know, in, in their own community. It does. Does that make sense? Um, I, I don't know. I feel a lot of ways about this. I mean, on the one hand, I think that that model of leadership is very dangerous. And the reason that we talk about having many leaders and that we spend a lot of time um, not having us be the leaders of the movement because we're not, um, is because it's way easier to um, neutralize a movement if you center everything in one person. We've seen this time and time and time again. Um, at the same time, I think that sometimes what can happen is that in an effort to reimagine what leadership can look like, we actually shy away from it. And I don't believe in that either. Um, I think that leadership is something that 
can and should be celebrated, but it doesn't need to translate into monarchy. So I don't believe in the Occupy Wall Street version of leadership where they just didn't believe in leaders. They said they didn't have any leaders. And I just am like, that's not true. It's just not true, <laughs> right? There were people who designed that frame. There were people who were organizing meetings. There were people who were designing the strategy. Um, that is leadership, <laughs> right? And so I think sometimes we do this thing, um, which also is kind of, uh, well, it's kind of racist actually. <laughs> we're, we're like, there's no leaders, but then people are leading from the back, right? And they're mostly pushing people of color to the front and saying, you know, you be the face of this, but people of color don't have the power. <laughs> So we don't want to do that either. Um, so I, I think actually that the model of many leaders, and that's not our, we didn't design that, right? I mean, this comes from, you know, cultures around the world um, where we all have a lane and we all have a role to play. And one lane is not better or more important than the other, right? What's most important is that everybody who's a part of our movement um, has the skills and the tools to be effective. Um, and as long as we're structured around that, then I think we're winning. Thank you. Um, I'll give somebody else a chance to ask. So uh, Alicia, you sort of touched upon a, a strategy to diffuse the attempts to paint activists as criminals. Uh, can you talk some more about that? And what do you think is the best direction for the current racial justice movement on the streets? You know, honestly, I think that we are in a fight against fascism right now. And we have to figure out a better way of exposing and countering um, what it is that Trump and his ilk are dredging up right now. We're letting a lot of people off the hook. A lot. And again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, spending time talking about what kind of violence we support and what kind of violence we don't support is um, not the hit. The actual thing that we need to be exposing here is, you know, how did white supremacy become, uh, come above ground? Why, right, are we not talking about racial terrorism? Why are we not talking about that? Why are we not talking about the fact that literally, right, we have Proud Boys and other racist militias who um, at this very moment, right, are like marching through streets in various cities, including my own, right? Um, and they feel emboldened to do so because their president, who is also a white nationalist, will not disavow it. And in fact, he's encouraging it. So I think that what we need to do right now is a hard, hard pivot. And, um, and we need to do that in a way that protects this movement. Um, the more we double down on frames that are not ours, the more we lose. Yeah, like how do, so if Trump is, is running on a platform and Nixon did this too, right, of law and order, um, where does the movement win okay. by trying to position itself on a spectrum of law and order? Okay. More questions? No, there's got to be more out there. Um, 
Yeah, if I could, I, I apologize. I got distracted by some uh, math login emergencies there for the kids. <laughs> um, the um, I understand. And I probably missed some stuff you were saying about uh, how violence is is working with this whole scenario. Um, I'm seeing a little bit of. Uh, stuff from people that are worried about the left-wing interference uh, like um well they mentioned specifically the concept of helter skelter which i guess goes back to manson's group i'm not exactly sure what they're talking about but they're talking about basically left-wing white violence interfering with the the mission of what the black lives matter people are trying to accomplish this was specifically about portland um, but I was wondering how you okay. feel. I mean, clearly you can get interference from both sides. I just wondered what you had to say about that. Well, I want to say this. Um, I don't get the sense after, you know, I think we're seven years into this now. Um, from having been to many, 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 many protests, um, I don't get the sense that um, this is accidental, and I don't get the sense that a lot of this is coming from the left. So. Right. There's definitely, it's confusing because there's plenty of room for false flag operations or whatever, you know, one, one side sure. pretending to be the other side to cause trouble and. Sure. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll give an example. Um, last week, apparently, there was a, a protest in my town um, around Jacob Blake. Um, having been here in movement for 20 years, I think I'm pretty plugged in. <laughs> I'm also very close to where this protest supposedly was. I didn't hear about it. I didn't hear it. I heard helicopters. I didn't see any of the people who I know who usually organize things there posting about it, talking about it, right? But the next day what ensued was broken windows and vandalism. I mean, you all know from the communities you live in, activist communities are pretty tight knit. They just are. And in some in some of our communities, right, we, we really all know each other. <laughs> so that's no shade to anybody who's um, newer and coming into things. But again, I don't get the sense that um, that a lot of this chaos is actually coming from the left. That's not my um, that is not my observation. Um, yeah, okay. I, yeah, the, um, but it's, it's, there's a lot of people that are obviously, and I have no idea exactly what their motivations are, or where they're coming from, but saying that any, any violence is interfering with the, uh, the Black Lives Matter effort, that it distracts uh, you know, it distracts from what the real purpose is. And I, uh, 
I'm all about nonviolence, but I also have come to the conclusion that nonviolence without the threat of violence behind it is is maybe not such a great tool either. So I'm just I'm just trying to feel my way through this. Mm-hmm. I understand. I mean, here's the thing. Um, I think that my my wish for us is to keep our eyes on the prize. And again, I don't know where we get to um, operating on a terrain that we didn't shape. So um, there are always going to be people who are going to be uncomfortable with a lot of things. I mean, when we were protesting, right, people didn't want us to protest. They were uncomfortable with that how loud it was, how angry it was, how blah, blah, blah. And that wasn't even a conversation about violence. That was a conversation about discomfort. Lots of people are uncomfortable um, when you interrupt, right? When you interrupt. And yet we say we want to interrupt the violence that is happening against our communities. I mean, Hi opened up this call talking about being, being tear gassed at a peaceful march. But what comes from that, right? Some people would say, what are we doing about the fact that the police tear gassed people who weren't doing anything? And other people are gonna come away from that scenario and say, man, that was really a bad look on Black Lives Matter. <laughs> you know, like if we are going to win here, we have to be conscious of whose stories we're adopting and for what reason. We just have to. Like I woke up this morning um, to a, 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 an article about how Van Jones is out here saying that we should ban nighttime protests. Whose stories are we telling and for what purpose? Like are nighttime protests the problem? Or is it what's happening in the cover of darkness? That 17 year old child walked right by police officers with an AK-47 and shot two people who were trying to keep him from shooting other people. The man had a skateboard. I can't emphasize this enough. And I think, you know, as somebody who, um, is on the losing end of these narratives, I certainly understand where you're coming from. Um, I've been asked many times to tell people to stop protesting so that we can get back to some decency. First of all, I don't have that power. And second of all, is that the actual problem? Because suddenly we've stopped talking about the fact that the police who murdered Breonna Taylor are still free and that they're now trying to cajole um, her ex-boyfriend to say that she was a part of a drug trade that she wasn't a part of. I mean, if we're going to be about this life, we need to really be about this life. (laughs) And we have to deeply understand that this government is very sophisticated in crushing dissent. And often they don't do it by force, but they do it by force when they feel like um, doing it by consent is not working. Gramsci told us that. 
and we're seeing it play out. So really the, the best response is just to try to, like you say, focus on the real issues that are trying to be decided, change the, change the narrative totally away from the discussion of violence and discussion of grievances, so to speak. Well, and the discussion of um, the forces that are actually running this and causing this. Um, it is an easy distraction to place the violence of white nationalists and white supremacists on black people. It's literally like saying at this moment, it's literally like saying, um, Black people put that cross on your lawn and, and set it afire. That's the conversation I feel like we're having in this country right now. Yeah, they're criminalizing, uh, they're criminalizing us is what they're doing. You know, while glorifying the ones that are actually doing the, you know, uh, doing the harm, you know. Yep. Um, yep. You know, it's, it's, it's yesterday it's, that, um, that that child, the 17 year old, that he was defending himself. It's amazing. This, this is something that I've been personally wrestling with lately is how, what amazingly stupid stuff people are so quick to believe. And yet, if you try to explain to them how capitalizing, how capitalism is ruining their lives and stealing their futures, they look at you like you're some kind of conspiracy nut. All right, my loves. I know we're coming up on, on, on time here. We are. Um, I really want to appreciate y'all for having me. And, you know, these are important conversations for us to be having. So don't stop it here. No, we won't. We won't. We got a whole school behind us now. Uh, Excellent. How do we get your book? Oh, um, well, it's not out until the 20th of October. So we'll make sure that we do, um, that we do a conversation about it once it's out. Yes, yes, absolutely. Excellent. And we'd love to get you back to Alabama sometime. Sure. So we can deal with Miss Rona. We'll make it happen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yes. Thank you so much. Quite an honor. It's good to talk to you again, Alicia. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks, y'all. Alicia. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Fireside Chats is a production of North Alabama School for Organizers. NASO seeks to empower communities through intersectional education and training. More information, including upcoming classes, at naso.network. Thank you for joining us for Fireside Chats. This has been a production of Spice Radio Huntsville, a nonprofit based in Huntsville, Alabama. You can donate to Spice Radio by going to spiceradiohuntsville.com and clicking donate. If you have a line on great music, events, or art in the Tennessee Valley, tell us about it at spiceradiohuntsville at gmail.com. Join us on Facebook to see live performances and interviews from our studio. And remember, you can stream the best local original music 24-7 on our website, spiceradiohuntsville.com.